Hi, everyone, and welcome again to another one of my podcasts on my Podbean and YouTube channel podcasts. Uh, I am joined on GaudiMissBest22.com. I'm Dr. Larry Chapp. I am joined by a repeat, uh, a repeat guest, although he hasn't been on in quite a while because he's been so busy. Father Harrison Eyre, the Canadian extraordinaire, uh, who is also working on a doctoral dissertation on Joseph Ratzinger's theology, as well as being the on again, off again uh, host on Clerically Speaking, a popular podcast. Let's some of my viewers have been wondering where your podcast has gone to. Yeah, we put it up a couple weeks ago, <clears throat> weeks ago, just after Christmas, just on a hiatus, um, just dealing with personal stuff and adjusting to some new realities and parish life and everything. I think it's just, we needed a, yeah. a bit of a longer break than we expected. So I think know, what people, yeah, uh, people need to understand about doing things like this. Cause I do a lot of them too. Is that it's a lot of work that people might think, Oh, how hard can it be? You just sit in a chair and you talk with somebody, but you know, it's, it's exhausting. You talk for an hour or so and you have to be on the top of your toes mentally of trying to follow a conversation. Then you have to prepare a little bit for what the topic is that day. And, and you it's just like, you have to go and it splits every time it's a, a new topic. A and and also it 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 dominates your focus during the course of a day. So, yeah. you know, if I say to myself, I got some writing I have to do for X, Y, Z in the morning. Oh, but I know I've got this podcast coming up at 1 p.m. It's just on my brain the whole yep. time I'm working in the morning. It's like, OK, well, I better hurry up here because in 20 minutes I got to set up. For... So, yeah. So I understand why you need to take a break from clerically speaking. But I do hope that you and Father Anthony uh, return to it because it was one of the best dad gum podcasts there was Thank you. Thank you. of Thank all you. times. I will uh, say it's, our, been helpful. it's been helpful to have a break too, just to actually focus on my thesis. Well, yeah, there's there's that. See, but I would recommend everybody out there, uh, anybody who's never listened to Clerically Speaking, I'm assuming that if they went on your podcast, there's all kinds of back. Oh, yeah. Back. There's over so, five years of episodes. Yeah. So, you know, plenty. Go look, go look. OK. So anyway, as we said, uh, Father Harrison has done his dissertation or is doing his dissertation on Joseph Ratzinger and uh, the theology of Joseph Ratzinger. And he's the question has recently arisen in, in a few articles and so forth that he's brought to my attention that I haven't read, but he's read. And that's the important thing um, is the, the issue of Joseph Ratzinger's relationship with uh, modern political culture, political theory. And there is um, a criticism out there that Comunio, the journal that he helped co-found, obviously, you know, has German edition, French, American, uh, but that it seems like of late, in particular, the American edition has taken a post-liberal turn. I know that someone like a DC Schindler or a Michael Hanby in particular, who write for Comunio and are on the Comunio editorial board, uh, have taken a sort of post-liberal turn. D.C. Schindler's book, The Politics of the Real, is, is a decidedly post-liberal thing. And of course, Hanby's written post-liberal things in conjunction with Front Porch Republic, New Polity. And they're all closely allied with things that have been done by people like Patrick Deneen and others. So the question arises, what gives with Comunio's apparent post-liberal term? Was Joseph Ratzinger, therefore, a post-liberal or was Ratzinger simply an endorser of modern political liberalism? What is liberalism anyway? 
Is there such a thing? Is there, because that's one of the criticisms too, that I sometimes hear all you people that write about liberalism with a capital L have turned it into this reified, essentialized thing that stands for something, but it isn't. It's just this diffuse thing like modernism, the great boogeyman modernism. What is it? All right. So anyway, I'm doing enough talking. I'm going to turn it over to you. Answer some of those questions, father. It's a very interesting question. I, 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 I was actually put on to this by Father John Neppel. Oh, Father John Neppel, who I've yes. had on this show. Yeah, yes. he and I have gotten into contact and we had a chat a couple weeks ago. He goes, have you heard about this? I'm like, no, actually, I haven't, because the area of my research deals a bit with his political theory, especially in my first chapter, because I talk a lot about what does he mean by the phrase the 19th century? Um, and but um, I was like, no, I just haven't really been looking, honestly. So um he brought me, I guess there's these two Jesuits, uh, one from St. Louis University and the other from CUA, uh, Father Sam Canadera and Father Vincent Strand, uh, who wrote this article. So I haven't read their initial article yet on Ratzinger's Republic, uh, which is their kind of um, work where they're trying to analyze Ratzinger's uh, political theory. But I, I, I haven't had a chance to get a hold of it yet. But I did read their more recent one that they published this summer and their First Things article that dealt with the same topic. And they're kind of critiquing Ratzinger for being inconsistent with his communio theology, uh, that they praise the American communio school guys of like of Schindler and, and Hanby, et cetera. Um, and um, by saying that they're actually doing what communio should intend, which is be this kind of post-liberal critique of, of liberalism and that they are actually taking the right turn. And Ratzinger was essentially not consistent. He's a great thinker. But in this one area, he was never quite consistent with his with um, with the, with the idea behind Communio. I don't know much about Strand and Candera, Candera outside of this article. Um, I, yeah, I know nothing things. about them. I know nothing. I have some like I have some inklings that they are obviously. I, I have some inklings that they're in favor of this this post liberal turn. Essentially, I have I have personal inklings to that myself even. But I yeah. think they are relatively unfair to Ratzinger. Okay. I because, it, like, um, how do I want to start? It's also very interesting for me. It's I'm like I'm just my brain juices have just been getting going again the last month. So just, they're slowly waking up again. Um, when I was reading the article, I was honestly frustrated because it presumed that what Ratzinger would argue about how the church relates to the liberal state wasn't consistent with communal theology and i found that hard to swallow because if you read ratzinger um he's one of the most consistent thinkers out there like he like for example i think they they almost like i i think where my one my wait, wait here's a place to start with a criticism that they presume that the big big l liberalism is consistent between what ratzinger means by it and what schindler and handy mean by it and I don't think they mean the same thing. Right. We have okay. to remember, like, Ratzinger comes from Europe. Um, European democracy is vastly different than the than the American experience. Um, and I don't think that Ratzinger was one to he was always looking for the good in things, always. But it didn't mean he didn't have criticisms. Like, so for example, he doesn't, I don't think he sees liberalism as this praiseworthy thing whereby um it's going to be able to instantiate these these kind of universal values on its own. He's very he's very consistent about saying, well, no, actually, it needs revealed religion to talk about moral truth, for example. 
You can't, you can't, the, the basic moral standards that you need for society must follow from a revealed religion. And he thinks that this is where Christianity has a real value to contribute to things. He doesn't see the liberal, he, he doesn't see the liberal state as neutral, I don't think. And I, I'm like, I would argue that that's because of like, like for, I mean, you have to go all the way back to his thesis on Augustine for that. Because there he talks about the city of God and, and how, um, like for Augustine, you have the two cities where uh, the city of God is kind of the church and the city of man is the state in a way, in a way. Um, and that it's all about worship. So the city of God worships God, the true God, the city of man worships the evil one. But he also saw them as necessary intertwined, necessarily intertwined. Right. That the church needs the state and the state needs the church in the redeemed world. Because we're fallen beings, essentially. Um, so I think that's well, as an act it's of like, charity, too. I mean, Jean Daniel Lou made the point, strangely, since he was one of the founders of Resource Month Theologie, uh, in, in Daniel Lou's book, and I think Rotzinger has echoes of this, his book, uh, The Politics of Prayer, Daniel Lou says that some form of a confessional state is almost a requirement of charity. Right. Because the average person is not capable of negotiating the nuancing and splitting hairs of fine theological doctrines and so on. They're about the business of day-to-day -day life. Yeah. And therefore, that's why the state should promote true religion yeah. so that people don't fall into false religion. It's just an act of charity. And I think and, that was Ratzinger. Yeah, and I think so too. And I think that Ratzinger, I mean, he's he's a bit, he sees the separation in some ways good uh actually in many ways good um because i think he saw in it not so much i think he saw it in a temptation for the church to cease being herself <laughs> oh by the way yeah i'm not endorsing integralism yeah, yeah. by the way i'm yeah, not, no, no, I'm no, not no. saying yeah i mean that's yeah that's the fascinating thing in this whole discussion right because it seems as if like for example the the community the american community school right now is taking a kind of quasi I would call it a quasi-integralist. Not that they're integralists, because they're not. But that, that's interesting. Some... I'm on the they're fence thinking... about that. I, I have to yeah. talk with, I, you know, I'm good friends with Hanby and Schindler. Yeah, yeah. But I think, well, I think... I, I've actually appreciated them because I thought they brought out some good, I think they've helped bring out some of the positive, positive aspects of, of integralism, where I've been more hesitant towards it in the past. Because well, let's not, put it this way. For, okay, let's, pa let's right? pause a second, okay, and then sorry. we're going to get back to Ratzinger to sort of set Ratzinger up, which is this. Part of the argument, of course, the whole post-liberal argument, is that there's no such thing as a neutral state. And you've already said you don't think Ratzinger believed that the state is neutral. In other words, every state is inherently integralist and confessional. There's no there's so the, the, the only question that's really left is what kind of integralist confessional state are you going to have a secular liberal one, an old fashioned, hard <laughs> Francisco Franco in Spain kind of integralist. Or, or some other iteration of what we're going on. So we're talking about different kinds of integralist understanding of the relationship between the good and politics, in a sense. Right. Anyway, I'm interrupting your flow of thought. So go ahead. Well, my flow's been all over the place. Um, but no, I, I think this is the thing. So Ratzinger sees a real separation between church and state as necessary for the modern state and for a pluralistic society, et cetera. But that's yeah. sep but I don't think he means I, I don't know. The way I would look at it is that it doesn't mean like a separation as in like 
cutting the cord completely, but rather as a relationship of, re of real freedoms, of the freedom of social bodies, right? The, the social body of the state, the social body of the church, that they both have a freedom whereby they have to, but you have a freedom to interact with each other. You need actually to be separated in a way, but it's not a separation whereby they're absolutely cut off from each other and they have no influence on each other. It's the separation so that real freedom can engage each other. And so like, so for example, in this article, they actually criticize that saying, well, then that's inconsistent. Ratzinger's notion of the idea of the separation of church and state is inconsistent with the idea that the church should supply the state with moral truth. I'm like, no, it's not actually. If you understand his, under his notion of the church and the state, you, this notion of separation is rooted in his notion of freedom. And you can't, you cannot understand anything Ratzinger writes without no understanding his notion of freedom, which is fundamentally rooted in an ontology of relationship. Right. So, so oh, go ahead. But, but that free, the freedom needs the ability to actually choose and to relate to one another, to reject or to accept each other. And so, for, so I don't, I've never, like, I think Ratzinger is trying to thread this very fine needle of how do we navigate the modern liberal state? as the church what role does the church have in this and he does see that the church has an absolute authority over ethics over the state for example always i mean otherwise the, the, the church cannot supply the state with this and that this is the means by which the state can have just a normal functioning day-to-day -day life and when the, when the state refuses to submit itself to this it's actually refusing the grace the, even it's like the, on a natural level it's refusing the grace of the moral truth and thus actually it ceases to be the state so you yeah, see in this, yeah. what I would argue, the communion notion of the relation. So it's all rooted at this. I mean, it's the problem of nature and grace again. It's all rearing its ugly head all over again, which is well, that it is. it's that this notion that. Hang on. Yeah. Go ahead. Keep talking. Okay. This Keep this talking. idea that that the state can only be itself insofar. And I think like Schindler does a good job of really exploring this idea. The state can only be itself insofar as actually open to reveal religion. Yes. And it must promote that ability in society. And this is, I mean, I know Communio did a whole issue on Dignitatis Humanity, and that was actually the other interesting thing. Like, they almost were presuming on Ratzinger a Murrayite notion of religious freedom. Oh, yeah. And that, and that would like, be a huge mistake. Not, no way. No way. Ratzinger was on the French school side of Dignitatis Humanity, which came out which came out as okay so yeah i read something from rodsinger once where he said look um liberalism has i i, I wish i could remember where and so on yeah. he goes look liberalism has its problems we can't just accept the hook line and sinker but he goes we have to at least acknowledge that the church can like spoils of egypt can take from liberalism certain things that it has advanced and and properly advanced because they do ultimately have an overlapping with the Christian vision, probably because they came out of the Christian soil. And one of those is the, the notion of conscience and freedom of religion. Okay. And yeah. that we, we should not be embarrassed to thank liberalism for, you know, had, had the enlightenment never happened and so on. And, and the various political revolutions, the church probably would have eventually hit upon this idea on her own and out of her own resources. I think you would say, but that doesn't change the fact that, historically speaking, it was liberalism that did this for us. Right. But then this is the interesting thing is he would disagree with the liberal notion of religious freedom, how they understand it. That's right. Right. And yes. this is where it gets because what do we mean by freedom? 
There we go. Right. And for Ratzinger. And this is, I think, um, and actually, I remember a long time ago, it was actually Father John Nepp on his podcast where he kind of explained this. And I was like honking the horn of the car. I was so excited when he said it because it summarizes well the whole of his mission of freedom. Nepple, that freedom idiot. Is... He doesn't know anything. <laughs> oh, jerk. <laughs> um, Go ahead. So freedom is freedom from. It comes from something, someone. Yeah. It, freedom has a relationship from someone. It's for someone and it's with someone. It's freedom for, freedom from, and freedom with. This is this is Trinitarian, obviously, but this is the fundamental notion of freedom. So freedom is not this isolated, individualistic sense of I get to choose whatever I want and whatever I want. And, and Ratzinger is incredibly consistent about this. So you need to read what he understands around freedom when he says the phrase religious freedom. He's actually expecting you to understand that, essentially. Um, perhaps at times he could be better about explaining that to maybe a secular audience in some of his speeches around this idea, but I think he's trying to play coy a bit. Like I have this, I have this actually deeper understanding of it than you do. And I want to, I'm hoping you'll investigate my thought to really understand what I mean by this phrase, religious freedom, because then the state's idea of religious neutrality or the, so this is where like, you know, the post-liberal turn is, is right. There cannot, there is no such thing as a, as a, um, religious neutrality this yeah and i know william kavanaugh's done stuff on this like the migrations of the holy and everything right it just it subsumes yeah. the holy to itself and, and and i think that's all right um so when the state starts doing this it's actually not exercising freedom it's isolating itself from from relationship to god everything so when the church says for example that the uh, religious freedom is after the right to life the most fundamental right of human existence it's meaning the freedom to seek after god which means an ability to actually relate to him. And that, means the, that he reveals himself to us. Yeah. And that means the state has to be open to this idea, the possibility that God re- reveals and that she must support in her structures of society, the ability to do this. So what he's doing in, essentially is he is fundamentally opposing the kind of French revolution idea of liberalism a hundred percent. Cause that's his big, that's his, you see, he's not attacking. I would say he's not attacking so much the American project as much. I don't. He's familiar with it. He even speaks about it in some praiseworthy way. Sometimes I think it would. I think it would shift a bit nowadays, anyways. Yeah. Um, he his 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 he's European. His boogeyman, the thing he's always attacking, is the French Revolution. Yeah. Yeah, and he's also uh, got to have in the back of his mind his own experience of twentieth century totalitarianisms. Uh, in in his own homeland, uh, and and I think one of the things that he would fear the most about one of the central aspects of liberalism is precisely out of its neutrality, so called, its claim to be the grand and hegemonic adjudicator of the social contract, uh, such that it's absolute. And and so let me read you something, and you can comment. It's on the Ignatius Press version, the latest one of Introduction to Christianity, page 113. I was literally just pulling it up before you even said that. <laughs> He's got this uh, line in here. I, I, I quote it all the time. He goes, in this sense, the profession, there is only one God, is precisely because it has itself no political aims, a program of decisive political importance through the absolute absoluteness that it lends the individual from his God and through the relativization to which it relegates all political communities in comparison with the unity of the God who embraces them all. It forms the only definitive protection against the power of the collective 
and at the same time implies the complete abolition of any idea of exclusiveness in humanity as a whole. All right. So uh, I think that's a critical point here in talking about like, the, the state does come under God, comes under transcendence and can in no way claim in some in some way to be uh, a co-equal competitor with the spiritual authority that mediates God to the world. Yes. And so and this is where um, so it's I'm very excited that you brought up Christ, introduction of Christianity because I, I was literally just thinking about this as you were talking. And this gets actually to his speech in 2005, which is kind of the thing that these guys, by the way, is, is their big jumping off point. Because they like they say that he's praising liberalism. And I, I'm like, no, I don't think like they talk about how optimistic he was about the new liberal state after the Second World War. I'm like, he 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 saw what the state can do. He had he he did go with some of the optimism, but it wasn't so much even the optimism of the state. It was the optimism of the hope for Christianity to evangelize once again. Yeah. He, he said, finally, finally, the world is going to is now been exposed to the lie of liberalism, essentially. And what it because this is the problem. And this is the I think this is the core point. And I think this is the core point everyone's missing when they're talking about his political theory. It's about narrative, which is why I've been reading Balthazar, <laughs> um, the, the dramatics, because I think this is all yeah. intertwined. Right. So. And he says this here. So is that this on page uh, 13 of his, like it's his most recent forward in Introduction to Christianity. He goes, anyways, where was the voice of the Christian faith at that time? In 1967, when the book was written, the fermentation of the early post-conciliar period was full, in full swing. This is precisely what the Second Vatican Council had intended, to endow Christianity once more with the power to shape history. The 19th century had seen the formulation of the opinion that religion belonged to the subjective private realm and should have its place there. But precisely because it was to be categorized as something subjective, it could not be a determining factor in the overall course of history in the empirical decisions that had to be made a part of it. Now, following the council, it was supposed to become evident again that the faith of Christians embraces all of life that it stands in the midst of history and in time and has relevance beyond the realm of subjective notions. Christianity, at least from the point of view of the Catholic Church, was trying to merge again from the ghetto to which it had been relegated since the 19th century and to become involved once more in the world at large. If you want to understand Vatican II, like that, par that paragraph right there is everything. And he's, this is the whole thing. He's saying that the 19th century has brought about a narrative. And by this right. means, uh, liberalism in the French Revolution School uh, it means he means Darwinism. Um, he means to an extent uh, uh, Marxism, and um, and uh, as a weird kind of child of of all of all these things, existentialism. Even though it's more of a twentieth century movement, and I would argue that he Nietzsche, kind of, Nietzsche, a Nietzschean existentialism. Yeah, I guess yeah, you could say that. Yes, and then at the heart of all this is materialism, which is the inability for the material to mediate the spiritual. The spiritual. And that this is this is the kind of late motif of the notion of the 19th century. This is the narrative. The narrative of the 19th yeah. century is saying that there is no meaning, in other words, and that uh, this is what liberalism, as one agent of the 19th century, is trying to see. So he does. So liberalism is not his big charge. It's actually the whole intellectual project of the 19th century that he sees as a problem, and that the council finally, because after two world wars, saw its opportunity. The church saw its opportunity to evangelize. And this is what this is where all the hope was coming from. 
it so it wasn't based on an optimism about the state. It was based on an optimism about the church. Yeah. And this is why I think he has some of a turn afterwards. It's not so much a turn in style or argument or anything. He's incredibly consistent. It's a turn in perspective of obviously things fizzled out after the council and went haywire. Yeah, this is uh, and you can comment on this because this is interesting to me. One of my criticisms, uh, and obviously I'm a, I'm a supporter of Vatican II. People know that, but I, it's not immune from criticism. And uh, I have two criticisms of the council, and I call them a double naivete. I think the council was a bit naive about the toxic nature of modern culture. Let's leave liberalism, politically speaking, out of the question. I think it was a bit naive about the toxic nature of modern culture. It might be ready and ripe for evangelization, but it was also, I think, far more degraded than a lot of council fathers thought. I also think that the council fathers were naive about the relative internal strength of the church. Right. All right. And so this is where maybe Ratzinger's optimism strikes me with regard to, okay, the church now, it's an optimism that we can go out and evangelize. And yet, okay, so I'm going to throw this out there, last point, and then you can comment. And yet already before the council, a young father Ratzinger in 1958 publishes that first bombshell article in the journal Hochschild called The New Heathenism in the Church, or The New Heathens in the Church, mm. where he essentially says the church is rotting from within because you've got millions and millions and millions of these so-called Catholics that are nothing of the sort. They're, they're Catholics in name only, and they're essentially modern heathens. In other words, he's saying they're thinking like modern culture thinks and not like Catholics. So if he's so, if he's so high on liberalism, why is he so critical of Catholics who have bought into the liberal project, so to speak, exactly. as new exactly. heathens? But also then, whence comes this apparent optimism he has going into the council that the church is now on the verge of this new springtime or something good point to, let me think about that that's i didn't think of it that way before because you're right about you're right about that article and it's a fantastic article oh it's great what's also it's interesting because it takes a very balthazarian lens on the notion of salvation and the church right that's the few that must suffer for the many to be saved that's right um, that's right is, but that's a whole other part of that it, it has this here's oh, like the I, I just published then, yeah go ahead but so he was never, yeah. So I don't, I might have to rethink a bit of my single thing about optimism. Well, I've stumped you. I've stumped you. No, then. no, it's good. No, no, no. That's, but no, the thing is learning. this, no, I, I, I don't, dis I'm, I don't, it's a question I, it's I ask point. myself. I've stumped myself with this because I do think people have identified a, a Ratzinger at the council that seemed very energized and optimistic that, that the church could via this council really re-energize herself and do and do things. And maybe, maybe I've just answered my question. Maybe he saw the, maybe he understood the rot that was in the church, but maybe he didn't quite completely understand how deep the rot was and believed that a rejuvenized church via the path of the council could eliminate some of that problematic, could light a new fire under people's rear end, so to speak. And and right. thought, I don't know. I don't know. Because, well, like it's interesting at the same like just to add to this discussion, because I think it's actually an important element of Ratzinger's thought is his how he understands like the lay faithful. Uh, he has a great love for the people of what he calls like simple faith. Yeah, he's a great love for them and a great respect for them. I mean, actually, in his last his last speech as Pope, 
to the Cardinals, he kind of subtly gives him a slap across the cheeks and says, the church was at the Wednesday audience. It's the faith of the simple people that we, that that's where the church is, uh, which is such a, it's such a Bavarian thing in so many ways. Like his Bavarianism is such a beautiful thing. And his, in his like, he's got this great yeah. mind, but he's got this childlikeness to him that is just, it's, it's endearing. Right. Well, it's because so, he was not, he was not born into aristocracy. Right. So I wonder if possibly there's a few things at play here. So one is <laughs> on the, on the level of like the lay faithful, for example, I think even though he saw this heathenism, at the same time, he also saw great devotion. Even in the midst of the heathenism, he saw something good there. He, I, and perhaps I may, I would say sometimes his his charity can go too far. He works. Mm -hmm. He bends over backwards to see things from the best perspective, and that's definitely for me, which is why it's hard to criticize people or thought sometimes because I'm like I'm trying very hard to see the best side of things. Um. So I think that's one part of it. Um, so he, and, and he had pastoral work for a couple of years. He saw what it was like. I mean, his, he was teaching youth groups, religious education, funerals all the time, burials, all this stuff. Like, and he had a good pastor, he said. Um, so he, he definitely, I think had a positive experience of the people overall, even in the midst of his criticisms, I think he saw a positive experience. So I think that's part of the optimism element is that he still had a hope for Christians to do the right thing. Um, on the other side of the optimism thing, I think this is more it anything than anything else. It's the intellectual environment he was in. Um, the he had a great uh, he had a great mentor in in Songen, who encouraged and nurtured his intellectual abilities. He was exposed to the communal school, but he's like a generation later than them, right? He's like, he really is the, he is the, um, he's the uncle of the communal school in so many ways, yeah, right? That's right. Um, he is. And so he, he's, he's, he's that second generation, which is actually interesting because he's kind of like the only standing figure in many ways of that second generation communal. Maybe John Paul II too, but very different. Um, like these greats don't, they never got a chance to, to become fathers, intellectual fathers to others to help continue the school as much, which is fascinating to me. Yeah. Um, so he was like, and he, but he did this from Germany where the community school was largely not, you know, it was in France largely because he loved French school of thought. This is why. Um, so I think in, and, and the exposure to the fathers and he saw in the fathers, the ability to really judge the world anew. And so I think he had a theological hope based on his experiences of seminary, the intellectual environment he was in, you know, going to um, Guardini lectures and all this stuff and seeing a real liveliness to theology and that it was kind of becoming a burgeoning career. Like you had, the, he had, I mean, if you're kind of, you're kind of an all-star if you were a big theologian back then. Like you, yeah, hear about you were classroom. I mean, you hear about Hans Kung and all this stuff and people are like overflowing their classrooms. And until universities are trying to grab these guys, they, these, so, and this is the other thing, people were listening. Even the young Ratzinger, when he would give lectures at university, the, the crowds were overflowing. So there's some hope. People are interested in what I have to say. I think where the turn happens then for him is he had a lot of people listening. He didn't have a lot of people integrating and actually, or maybe a better way, but a lot of people hearing, but not a lot of people listening. Yeah. 
because the same people who would overpack his lectures were then revolting against him in the summer, in the in the riots and stuff like that of sixty eight. Um, and I think that's 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 where the shift happens. I think he came to like this personal realization that just because they saw in him, he he was a broad thinker in the best sense of the term, and so people saw in him a liberalism that actually was never there, mm -hmm. theological liberalism that wasn't there, and so he presumed because he always saw the best in people that they were just actually interested in the truth so this is like more speculation here just getting to know his personality and stuff like that some of the things yeah. i've read i think that that's kind of where so the optimism is he had very positive experiences throughout his early priesthood essentially of the church and yet it all flipped in a moment in 1968 yeah and uh it all leads to the great the greatest revisionist mythology of all, which is that the young Ratzinger was this big liberal progressive. And then because he didn't like what happened after the council, he took a conservative swing into reactionary theology. That is the biggest BS ever. It is. And, and it's the biggest, it's the biggest BS ever because, um, so to understand Ratzinger's method, you have to understand his, you have to read his the God of Faith and the God of Philosophers lecture. And in it, he talks about the interrelationship between dogmatic and fundamental theology. He's ex, he's expanding Dulebach's argument on method about how fundamental and dogmatic theology kind of go together. The questions changed. And so because the questions that people had on their hearts, the questions that people had to have addressed changed, the theological style and the way he addressed theology in general had to change. So like the style and method yeah, changes in yeah, a way, yeah. but never the substance, never the substance. And what's interesting to bring in introduction to Christianity into this, I mean, he yeah. wrote this book in 67, I do believe. Yeah. yeah. So he's writing it right at the cusp, right in the middle of this change, not a change of ideology from liberal to conservative, how stupid and superficial, but his change in his perception of how he has to address the world. Exactly, exactly, exactly. Yeah. And you see an introduction to Christianity. A, one of the things why it just is so revolutionary to so many people when they read it for the first time. I read it as a freshman in college for the first time in like 1978, and it changed my life, okay? Mm -hmm. And I'm sitting there thinking, this man knows how to speak to the modern world. Yes, yes, exactly. He saw the world change. Yeah. And... And he was, I think, the best, he had the best reaction to the council, which was never, let's just jettison this because it's not working. It was, okay, the world has changed and maybe we have misassessed how the world is. And I mean, like, in a way, you have to also remember, like, a lot of these guys are just pastors, right? And so when you're a pastor, you often just try to see the best in your people. <laughs> yeah. Sometimes because yeah. it's the only thing that will keep you sane. <laughs> <laughs> But like you know, it's pastoral heart, right? That's a, yeah, a yeah, absolutely. Heart, you, know, you, know? you know, and and you're trying to bring the good out of things, right? So, um, yeah, I'm I'm the but, opposite of that. I'm I'm neither a glass half full or a half empty guy. I'm a uh, you have a glass kind of guy. <laughs> There's a glass. Wait a minute. Let's break so, it. Let's break it. Yeah, let's smash that glass. Yeah, so nobody exactly, can have exactly. a glass. So anyway, exactly. go ahead. But um. I was like, well, my thought there. And I was, I'm oh, sorry, oh, I interrupted no, no, you. Okay. okay, no, no, it's okay. Uh, so he doesn't see the council. He saw the what the council's trying to do: establish a new narrative. The church should shape history. 
And so now that he saw that the world was changing, it wasn't what he maybe expected it to be. So maybe he made a misjudgment about the direction of the world. He's had to change everything to be able to speak to it still. And yeah. that's what changed was the world changed, not him. He stood in the same place. The world was revolving around him in that sense. And he just adapted. He changed his person. He said, okay, now we have to go this direction. I mean, it might be a little simplistic, but uh, I kind of break him down into three epochs, right? Like uh, yeah. up until 1968 or so, he's dealing with the problem of existentialism. Because that's what he sees. I mean, especially Boltman and stuff like this. He's dealing with all those questions. And then after 1968, it's dealing with um, the the changing modern world plus Marxism. And then after the fall of communism in Russia, he's dealing with the question of liberalism. Yeah, it's interesting because like most of his political stuff comes after 1991, and it's as the head of the prefect of the Congregation for Doctrine of Faith, which means he's using his role in this to speak to the world, to inform them what the church has, that the church has a place to shape it here. And so he sees that the church ha must have this, this role in society. He's fulfilling it through his role. And yeah. he's trying to argue with the state to say, you actually have to listen to us about some of these things if you really want to be a state. And so it kind of- Absolutely. And he sees the council as vital to this project. Yeah. He does, and and so the, I I, I don't know. Uh, I have, like I said, I haven't read the article by these two guys you're talking about, uh, but for them to paint him as just somebody who's sort of bought into a John Courtney Murray, yeah, thing just seems to me strike me as. Do you understand Joseph Ratzinger at all? Right. Yes. Exactly. Because it seems to be, I mean, like I said, I shouldn't criticize an article I haven't read. Uh, but just based on what you've told me, how you could scope out Ratzinger slash friend of liberalism and and understand the rest of the entire corpus of his theological career and his theological writings is consistent with that is beyond me. This is the thing. How can you be consistent in everything but this? Yeah. How can you? Okay. Perhaps at times he's taking the very... He's taking a diplomatic approach of trying to be very careful with his words when he's depending on his audience. But again, he's speaking to a particular audience, so he's going to adapt his words to this. So yeah. you always have to look at the audience he's speaking to. He's speaking to a bunch of secular people. His his he's going to be a very secular speech. Um, like his his talk with Habermas, his his debate with Habermas is is which he, by the way, he convinced Habermas that religion actually ought to have more of a role in society than Habermas was willing to give initially. Um yeah which is amazing. Um, he's, he's going to use more secular tones because he's trying to use their language. And I mean, that is a question of method at times. Is, is that a valid way to do things? Um, but I think he's trying to say, well, yes, but the church has a role. Like, like you think about even his speeches as Pope, like one of his famed speeches is the one to the um, parliament in, uh, in, in England, where he talks about the relationship, the role of the state and religious freedom. And it's a brilliant piece that flows from his theological perspective. Yeah. Um, everything he writes flows uh, from his method around the relationship between dogmatic and fundamental theology. And you can't, and if you're, if you can't understand that, you're not reading him right, in my opinion. And to understand what an incredibly nuanced and sophisticated thinker that he is, as someone who understands the intellectual genealogy of modernity in and out, and who understands the church's history, and therefore understands a couple of things that an unbridled atheistic 
liberalism with with an amoral core, a so-called value neutral, and a, is a recipe for creating all of the de- de- politically demonic nightmares that we saw in the 20th century. Politics devoid of he under on the one hand he sees it, on the other hand he's acutely aware of the grave difficulties in the church's history by her various strong Constantinian arrangements of established churches. And like you said, he saw the danger to the church of these kinds of arrangements when she began to take on the patina of worldly power and authority. Right. And so to give him credit for being such a complicated and nuanced thinker that he sees the difficulty in in both of those things. And he doesn't even view them. Oh, those are the extremes. And I'm scoping out a middle. Those are not extremes. Those are simply problematic perspectives in the midst of certain truths that they might be articulating. They're also deeply problematic in the following ways. So he says, let's try and extract the truths that are in there and see what we can come up with. Now, that's not going to be somebody who simplistically says, hey, let's give two thumbs up to liberalism or two thumbs down. Um, And I I just don't get how anybody could interpret him in in these kinds of unnuanced qualifications. And the fact is, liberalism is still kind of the order of the day. Hmm. Right. But he's trying to navigate a way for the church to reemerge as a shaper of history. I mean, if this is this is Vatican, this is this is. I mean, I may have mentioned it before on your show, but it's like, this is the thing I, I keep on screaming to people why Vatican II is so important. It's about shaping history again, which yeah. means the church is a player, but the church can only be a player when she understands her role as a sacrament of salvation and all her members as active <coughs> actors in all of that. That's right. And the pursuing yeah, holiness. This, yeah. If, yeah. So the universal call to holiness is so vital to yeah. all this. So Especially the need for a lay a revolution. Yes, exactly. So until we get this, until we get this into our thick skulls as a church, nothing's going to change. Because I would argue, actually, in some ways, he may even see. I, I'd have to think about this. So I'm just going to. This I may have to correct myself later. We'll see. Um, but <laughs> I would actually, I would actually possibly see that he would see even more hope for the church today, in a way, than he would have seen 50 years ago. Why? Because he's seeing the 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 cracks and the fissures in the liberal state that you didn't see beforehand. Um, Because what was the answer to World War II? Well, let's just reimagine the state. (laughs) Not let's ask questions. What is the state? And and go. Yeah, let's just reimagine it in these non totalitarian ways. (laughs) Right. Which is itself a totalitarianism. Um, (laughs) But anyways, um, he he really is. I think he would see more hope today because those fissures are there. It says the church has more opportunity than ever to take yeah. her evangelistic role seriously. And it's fascinating because we are, I think we are seeing in some ways the fact of that. Like last year, I received 20 people into the church of my parish. Uh, this year, we we're receiving another 20 people at Easter, including children. Wow. Right. I, and honestly, I haven't had time or mental energy to organize evangelical outreach stuff yet it's just happening it's just the yeah, lib catholicism that you have embodied in your priesthood well, I, I think there's that but i think there's also i think part of it is people are looking out in the world and they're seeing that the meaning that western liberal democracy has kind of tried to impose as like the meaning of life life liberty pursuit yeah. of happiness the kids the two dogs and the and the the Disneyland vacation every year as as the fulfillment of all life. 
I think people are finding that less fulfilling. And they don't. I agree. And it, the, and it gets to a question of meaning again. And I think it starts to pro, poke and prod at us in ways that starts to open us to the question of, well, what is the meaning and purpose of life? So like in my preaching a lot, I'm trying to get back to, I'm almost doing like fundamental yeah. theology over and over again about, we got to get asked, asking these fundamental questions. Um, we do. And the reason why liberalism believes that it can get away without asking those fundamental questions, that we can just construct a state with, with, and, and treat those questions as if they're nullified, as if they're of no importance, yeah. as if they're dangerous. The reason why is because it has lived parasitically off of the patrimony of Christian moral and spiritual values for about 400 years now. It, and it is very vampire-like. It's very parasitical mm -hmm. as it, mm -hmm. as it pushes Christianity into a privatized subjective domain on the margins of society. You're not part of how we construct reality. It, it you know, you look at someone like a Thomas Jefferson, all right, or, or the American, we hold these truths to be self-evident. The declaration of independence begins right self-evident that all men are created equal and are endowed by their creator with certain none of those things are self-evident and here's the fundamental problem with the enlightenment right it presumes that simply through reason simply through common sense and reason you're going to reach the enlightened morality of altruism and you know love of neighbor all the things that christianity preached that transformed the roman empire into europe okay as we came to know it well that whole project is now bankrupt. Yes. And so I think to go along, in other words, I'm corroborating what you're saying about Ratzinger might be optimistic right now, you know, in, in the sense you could look out and you can see the parasitical project is bankrupt and it is now being exposed as the falsehood that it was, that these truths are not self-evident, that they are inextricably linked up with the Christian evangel and that there is only one way to recover these moral truths, back into our civilization in order to save it and that is to return to the christian evangel yes exactly and so he i mean in some ways and i i, I mean i think it's my hope too in some ways i mean we're at a very interesting intersection right now in the history of the church and i i i, I both like um i both lament and am hopeful for the crossroads we're at right now because I'm I'm in the thick of it. I'm at the right age to be in the thick of all this uh, at the height of my activism as a priest and everything and where we're supporting something that's crumbling all around us in the church. <laughs> yeah. But that at the same time uh we're trying to uh I I just see this opportunity to kind of really let the gospel take hold again. And so like, and I guess actually there's something Ratzinger talks about the, the smaller, purer church thing, which by the way, like he was not trying to be prophetic about this, nor was he trying to wish this into existence. He's a, he was just thinking a bit about what's a possibility. Um, uh, and by, and he also means by this, not the idea that there's just less Catholics. He just meant that again, it's the, the few, it's the, it's the few, yeah. it's, it's the great, it's the few uh, that, the, that, that he's going to be a smaller church, but a holier church. Right. You yeah. don't think he was, you don't think that he, you don't think that he didn't think that that's exactly. No, the, what's going to be the future. Cause no. when I read that and I think it was in faith in the future, it seems to me yeah. that he's saying he's not, he's not saying, I hope this is what's going to happen. Isn't he saying, I, I think given 
the state of modern society in the church that this is probably what probably what's going to happen let's let's go to the videotape hang on i was gonna say i think well i think it's in seawall um in, oh where is it here is my biography okay i think i've got sort of faith on the future here all right you're gonna look at faith in the future I, I having vague memories that he mentioned something in either it's either in the biography by Seawald or in one of his interviews with Seawald. Oh, okay. So I'm gonna look that up. You look here. All right. And while everybody's out there listening, you're gonna realize <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. Uh I, I maybe you're right. Maybe it was Seawald. I thought it was in this it's in faith thing. in the future. It is in faith in the future. Oh, it's it is faith in the faith in the future. Okay, I'm not certain where the where I, I'm not finding it in my little handy dandy book here. I've got all I've got so many things under you know you reach a state where you underline so many things in a book that the underlines don't mean anything anymore because you've got everything underlined. Yep. <laughs> the future of the world through the hope of men. Seventy. Whoa, what the church will look like. Here we go. I think I undo it here. Okay. Uh, the future of the church once again as always will be reshaped by the saints by men that is whose minds probe deeper than the slogans of the day who see more than others see because their lives embrace a wider reality okay that's that's sort of he's setting up what's what's going to be needed are the saints and so he says, and so it, this is on page 105. And so it seems certain to me, he says this. And so it seems certain to me that the church is facing very hard times. The real crisis has scarcely begun. We will have to count on her on terrific upheavals, but I am equally certain about what will remain at the end, not the church of the political cult, which is dead already, but the church of faith, it may well no longer be the dominant social power to the extent that it was until recently, but it will enjoy a fresh blossoming and be seen as man's home where he will find life and hope beyond death. The church, and then he, earlier on, he says the church will be a more spiritualized church, not presuming upon a political mandate, flirting as little with left as with the right. It will be hard going for the church, blah, 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 and so on. Anyway, faith in the future. So he's not saying necessarily. He says, I'm certain the church is going to have hard times, and I'm certain yes. something's going to happen, something, something. Well, but you're right. He, he doesn't He doesn't flat out say, hey, we're up, yeah. we're up in it, and it's going to be terrible. He, no, he doesn't say that. Yeah, he doesn't. He actually I, says it's, sure it's going to there's going to be a reflourishing, a reflowering. Because the grain of wheat has to die. Right. That's the that's the cycle of the church. If there's something repetitive to her cycle, it's that she must die in order to rise again always. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so he's going to go. He, that's that's always a constant motif. It's why for him, the church is best understood through the lens of the saints and the martyrs, especially martyrdom. Like for him, like I, it would be great if someone like there's there's a great doctoral thesis right there is to talk about his theology. Talk a little bit. Oh, yeah. Well, let's talk about that, because I was I just finished a podcast with my friend kale zildin and we were talking about sanctity in the in the world today and what what it's going to increasingly look like and i just had a blog post that came out yesterday called the falsification of the goods part three talking about sanctity 
And I'm very intrigued by this notion that the fundamental vocation of the Christian in the church is to, in a sense, hang on, I got to vicariously suffer for the salvation of the whole world. So can maybe you could talk about that a little bit. So for him, the martyrs are always going to be the absolute example of Christian life. He's not saying everyone's going to be martyred, obviously, but he right. says that at the heart of every, like, I think he does something in one of his pieces. He doesn't, it's interesting. The one area he didn't talk a ton about was actually moral theology. Uh, oh, they did more as prefect, I guess, of it. But like in his personal theology, moral theology was never a big thing. But, um, but it wasn't oh, for actually, Balthazar I remember, either. I remember now. Uh, it's in his letter about the German church and the abuse crisis. He talks about martyrdom there as the essence of the Christian faith. And that's that's the form the Christian always has to take. And it, it's 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 all over the place in his writings. He loves that theme. And I think he's right because I mean it's the Christian form. It's 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 the form of the cross. And at, at the heart of Christian life is a is a kind of dying to self. This is it for yeah. him like this notion of the death and resurrection of Christ being lived out in us is always going to take a particular form in each person's life. And insofar as we cooperate with that, we are, that's how we become a saint. And so there's an obedience. So I think he's very close to, to a Balthazar. On his oh, that's, mission gosh, yes. Person. My book, Confession of a Catholic Worker, where I'm leaning on Balthazar's yeah. book, Moment of Christian Witness. I mean, it's yes. the Ernstfall moment. It is the moment of decisional crisis in which we choose to emulate the cross of Christ. Right. And Ratzinger speaks positively of that book against, uh, uh, because he actually, I think, uses it in Principles of Catholic Theology against Rahner a bit, actually, which is, is interesting. Well, um, I think the most unfortunate thing about that book is the end point where there's the dialogue between the commissar and so on and the liberal theologian who's clearly Rahner in disguise. <laughs> uh, I mean, it's Balthazar at, at that is polemical best in some yeah. ways, and, and but that's at the very end of the book. The rest of that yeah. book is not really a diatribe against Rahner no. at all. No, no, no. It no, is no, no, an no. extended meditation on the necessity of martyrdom in, 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 in white martyrdom for most of us right. and, and so, the cross. So this gets to what we we're talking about earlier around the council and the universal call to holiness. Yeah, and this is where I feel like and I and I, and I hold myself in an equal account here for it all how little we've allowed the gospel to imbue the, our life so that it becomes a totality. And this, I mean, again, what's Ratzinger saying in Introduction to Christianity at the beginning? That the Christ, that what Christianity proposes is a whole way of life. Yes. That there's nothing in your life separated uh, from Christ. The whole life is a participation in this, and that to be in the church is to participate in this fully. Um, and so martyrdom is a vital way because it means a kind of dying to self. It means a yes to a mission that may even mean putting yourself to the side. Yes. That your person oh, only becomes itself insofar as it dies to self and thereby finds itself. It's kenosis, baby. It's, it's theosis yeah. through kenosis. Hey, exactly. I don't mean to interrupt, but uh, we're running up against the time when you yeah. told me originally you had a hard break that you you had to sort of uh, you could only I stay. Think, a I, certain... have, I have I have a I have a bit of wiggle room. Oh, I'm just okay. trying to be conscious of my steady time. <laughs> yeah okay that's very good well i wouldn't want to take away from your study time either but we can go uh you know, we've been we've been doing this about an hour so maybe yeah. we can go a few more minutes um sure, sure. Well, so a good topic uh, to end with anyways martyrdom right yeah yeah it's i mean very, i love very, this 
So I'm, I, I'll uh, give, go I'm going to give it, I'm going to, so I think this is it. This is, this is the heart of it. And I think this is, I, I'm still, I wreck, I rack my brain about this every day about how do we, in, how do we help as in parishes, in the home, et cetera? How do we help people come to this realization that to go to mass on Sunday is not just the bare minimum. It's not enough. It, it's actually the culmination yeah. of everything. Not the start. It's not the, it's not the only thing you do. It's actually, it's actually the summation of everything you do. Um, and that it's, it's a hard, so it's like, it's why there's, there's needs to be this kind of ability to listen. You have to really, this is where I think Pope Francis is really good on actually is. Oh, he's great on it. He just doesn't follow through on it. On this notion of this listening, this, this closeness, this, uh, this accompaniment is, is, is actually quite essential. And I would think Ratzinger is, is someone who actually lived this quite devoutly. Um, but I'll, I'll um I'll hint at a bit from my conclusion to my thesis with this. I'm gonna hint yes. because I wanna be I wanna be careful to not broadcast it too much. Uh but I think if you want to understand this theology of martyrdom the best, look at his resignation from office. Yes. There's something apocalyptic about it. There is. And and um I think God actually asked him to step down. I I think that it's the only thing that makes sense because he's a man that would not have made such a decision lightly yes. uh, at all, at all. It's not like he said to himself, you know, this job's getting kind of away from me and I don't like doing it anymore. I'm getting kind of old and this damn thing's killing me. So I'm out of here. See you later, guys. No, that's not you what want- it, something far more profound all- happened. Far more I'll profound. Share, I'll share more with you when we're done. But uh, if if people want to, I, I would this is what I would encourage: read the read every speech, everything he said for the last two weeks of his papacy. Read everything. Um, I think we need to stop reading his resignation as a political event, because that's the only interpretation that's out there. Uh, it has nothing to do with ecclesial politics. That's right. It's a spiritual moment that we must be obedient to listening to. And too few people have been obedient to listening to it. And I think if you look at this, you see the heart of what martyrdom is. You see the heart of the church, and he's actually witnessing to what the Christian faith is meant to be. It's a severe wow. obedience to God's will. You and I are so much on the same wavelength. I'm not going to toot my own horn here, but in 2013, right after he resigned, I just made a stupid Facebook post of a two or three paragraphs long in which I talked about why he resigned. And the, the upshot of it was this, that his resignation was not an act of cowardice. It was not an act of betrayal, but it was an, it was an act of the deepest and greatest charity, that it was the act of a Christian saint and a martyr. Uh, and it was actually, then it went viral, it was picked up by Chicago newspapers, and I was interviewed on the radio. Once again, I'm not saying that in order to toot my own horn or look but to point out how profoundly I agree with you and that I've been saying it for 10 years, going all the way back to the beginning, that people are getting this wrong. They're getting his resignation wrong. Yes. Mm-hmm. And, and just often, as they got him wrong his whole life. Yes. And it's sad because essentially a lot of times I, I, I read it as, well, I'm just not happy with Pope Francis. So I'm really mad at Benedict for stepping down. Yeah. And I, think that that's grossly unfair to a man who has been who 
he never got to do what he wanted to do with his life. You know, the the phrase of St. Peter, like you'll, you'll a belt will be wrapped around a race and you'll go where you do not want to go. Kind of defines his whole life. All he ever wanted to do was stay in his beloved Germany or surrounded by his books and to be an academic and a professor yeah. and, and publish theology stuff and live that life. That's all. And then all of a sudden he gets called to be a bishop and then a cardinal. And then, you know, he turned down the offer, the, the request from JP2 to be head of the DDF twice until John Paul ordered him to do so. Yeah. And then he gets elected pope. <laughs> and he's a man of a complete yes to everything. Yeah. So he's supposedly after, after submitting out of obedience to the will of the church and what her need was and, and never getting what he wanted out of life, which was to just be a humble German theology professor in Bavaria someplace. Uh, eating his beloved schnitzel and sausage and so, so on and so forth. Uh, uh, you know, no, but suddenly at the end of his pontificate, he got selfish. Suddenly then he turned into a coward who said, no, not going to do it. It's nonsense. It's absolute nonsense. It's, it's nonsense. And it's not the man. It's never been that. That's never been the man. Um, nope. And if you, I think actually uh, it's funny when Gans Fine's book came out, you know, there's all this heat around it. It's really not, it's not that controversial a book, but he talks about how Benedict's prayer changed about six months before he stepped down. And like, there was an intensity in his prayer that he had never seen before. And I think that this is it. I think there was something about his human circumstances that brought it about. Cause he mentions, you know, my, the weakness of my age, like, I think he was actually like recognizing, but there's also a judgment in his resignation on the church. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to say what it is yet. I'll say it off air. I, I want to be careful. Right. I just want to be careful that no one takes yeah, well, you, yeah, yeah. something and then my 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 the whole conclusion to my thesis. You have to reserve it. Me. You have to keep it. Yeah. But um, but I just, you know, there's a judgment there on the church. And I think actually a good insight into this. I don't agree with how he gets to it and everything. Giorgio and Gavin has this little book on the renunciation of office. Uh, yeah. Benedict that sees it as one of the great acts in the Western world today. Uh, because it's a judgment against the Western notion of the West Western notion of institution in general. And that is because for Agamben, institution is only possible when it has a spiritual principle underpinning it. I love which Agamben. Is, what what's the name is, of the is, book? I am forgetting it off the top of my head right now. Um but if you look it up, it, it's not hard to find. It's like a little tiny book. Um hang on. Uh one second. I'll I'll effort this on Amazon. Hang on. I've got it right. Uh all right, it's not this one, The Church and the Kingdom, is it? No. Um, I love this little book, by the way, The Church and the Kingdom by Giorgio Agamben. Uh, with The Mystery of Evil, uh, Benedict XVI and the End of Days. Oh, I have not seen that. I got to get that. Now, doggone it, I'm going to have to get right on Amazon Sorry. after we're done here. Sorry, yes. What's it? That's, so for our, for our listeners again, repeat it again for our listeners. And by the, the way, The Mystery of the Mystery of Evil, Benedict the Sixteenth, and the End of Days. Okay, and it's Giorgio, G I R G I O R G I O, Giorgio Agamben, A G A M B E N. For those listening, and for those, this is you can see his name up there. This is a different book, uh, but I now I got to get that book because yeah, that book that book kind of opened my eyes to the. <laughs> I, took a, I took a bit of a different direction in him. But he, because like he has this whole thing about rats here in Tyconius, and I think he's stretching it big time. Uh, but but he has some really interesting insights there, and he's actually very ratsing area. <clears throat> yeah, and Agamben. What's here, interesting again is Agamben is one of these guys on the intellectual peripheries of the church. Yes. He's yes, not exactly. exactly a devout and profound and orthodox Catholic. He's 
he he's got theology seriously though takes theology yeah he, he claims that he's not a believer and yet he takes theology with such seriousness it's unbelievable so yeah. so i think he's going to say believer. quickly that he 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 is very close with ratzinger on the relationship between institution and spirit uh ratzinger it's institution and charism um yeah but that it's a and he because for Gaman, he sees that western institutions in general are crumbling and crumbling fast and because they refuse their spiritual principles. So, so he sees the renunciation of office as a kind of judgment on the notion of Western institution. And, and you know, right here says, I could no longer govern, essentially. That's a judgment on the institution of the church. On her, on, and by this, I mean not her, her um, divinely ordered institution. I mean her necessary worldly institution that has yeah. been twisted and fallen away and has refused to listen to the charism that's behind it. And so Agamemnon, oh, he's rightly, I think, in this, and I, he, he's very Ratzingerian in this, uh, on this idea. A great essay by Ratzinger on this is uh, uh, the theological, uh, what is it? I think like the theological locus of the new movements of the church or something like that. F amazing essay. One of my favorites. Oh, well, it's, uh, this book here, The Church and the Kingdom by Agamemnon, he points out it, very similar. The church is uh, aired in the modern world because it is abandoned its concept of time uh, and, and he, he, yes, yes. He, the Pauline concept of the church's time is that the church is living in what he calls messianic time. So what he's claiming is the church has lost its eschatological senses. Yes. Yes. All right. And therefore it's inner spirit. It's inner charism. Yes, yes exactly. So yeah, this is so rasping, right? Like eschatology has its place, but not in this kind of Boltmanian. Right. Uh, the eschaton is like internally experienced and known. And I have this insight that Christ is whatever, whatever, blah, blah, blah. Well, it, no, no. But, but like if this, and I, I'll just say this, take that insight and then just think about it as you're approaching the renunciation of office. That's all I'll say. Okay. Well, why don't we leave it at that and, <laughs> sure. and, and, end on I'm that sorry note. For being with, so mysterious. I just, with I that just big tease. So... Well, someday my listeners will just have to buy your dissertation it's when it's when it comes published out. as a book as a book but anyway uh i have to run you gotta run so yeah. hey but it wasn't my longest podcast ever it's like right around one hour instead of my usual hour and 15 but we're, we're gonna call it there yeah and i got it's always endlessly great talking to you we'll have, we need to do this more often but we're both so yeah. darn busy it's hard to yes. do but anyway and thanks for coming. we all yeah very different time zones so you're in western canada i'm in eastern u.s Hey, but thanks for coming on. Thanks a lot. Thanks for having me on.